It is Thursday, March 25th, 2021, and this is the Five Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we're going to talk about UFC 260. Recent rash of cancellations due to COVID-19 protocols, will it affect pay-per-view buy rates? I'll also give you my prediction on what those pay-per-view buy estimates will be coming out of the event. Then we're going to talk about the PFL. Lawsuits from when they were the World Series of Fighting have apparently caught up to the promotion and may delay the 2021 season. We'll break down the business ramifications of that, especially since they had to cancel their 2020 season, also due to COVID-19. Then we're going to talk about Misha Tate. She's making her comeback July 17th against Marianne Renault. And as far as we know, she's also still a one championship vice president. I'll tell you why she may still end up being a one championship vice president when all is said and done, even if she's fighting for the UFC. And lastly, we're going to really quickly touch on an announcement regarding the UFC antitrust hearings that will take place on April 6th. I'll break down why it's important and what we can expect. So as always, you've got the timestamps at the bottom of the screen. So let's go ahead and dive right into it. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about is UFC 260. We've lost a lot of fights over the past couple of weeks due to COVID-19 protocols. We've lost Luana Pinero versus Randa Marcos, Jessica Panay versus Hannah Goldie, William Knight versus Alonzo Menafield, although Menafield is staying on the card with a late notice replacement who is Fabio Chiron from LFA. Still should be a good fight, but not what we originally expected. And of course, the biggest fight we've lost was the original co-main event for the 145-pound featherweight title, Alexander Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega. Now, from a business standpoint, first question is, how is this going to affect pay-per-view buys? Well, I've talked about it on this podcast many times, got an article on thebodylock.com. If you haven't read that already, or if you're a new listener, I'll go ahead and break it down very quickly. Based on the fighter MRP study that Paul Gift did, we know that the main event is the main reason that casual viewers end up purchasing a pay-per-view. So, there is a correlation with the co-main event. If you've got some fans, maybe some Australians that are very big into Volkanovsky or some of Ortega's fans from when he made that run before Max Holloway beat him, if they're still stuck around, they like, oh yeah, I know Ortega. I'll, I'll go ahead and tune in that fight. Nothing else going on. I'll go ahead and buy it. You may lose some of those people, but it's not like the pay-per-view estimates drastically get revised down. We're not looking at, you know, cutting it in half even a third, I'd say maybe you lose anywhere from five to 10%. I believe the correlation that GIF found was, you know, around up, up to 20, maybe if it's a particularly big main event. And that's, if you're talking, you know, um, someone that that's just a big draw in general in a main event spot. But other than that, you're not looking at a major hit to the pay-per-view buy rate. So I don't think it's going to really affect the pay-per-view buys overall. That being said, we did lose a lot of fights due to these restrictions. And one has to ask about UFC 261. So in the podcast I did last week, I talked about how the UFC would look at that cost benefit analysis and on paper kind of made sense to go ahead and do live crowds. And if you can eat the negative press, which the UFC is very good at doing in general, you're going to be okay. If it ends up being an outbreak where a lot of fans get it, it's traced to the UFC event, and then you've got a bunch of people complaining about it, you've got a lot of mainstream media focusing on that, that could be a bit of a disaster. But that's generally lower risk, especially when you have other 
entities, you know, opening up things like WrestleMania, right, is supposed to have people in the crowds. And that's that's going to happen before the UFC gets to Florida. So you're not going in there alone. You're the first sports entity that's going to go in and have full capacity. But it's not like other entities in Florida aren't fully open and aren't trying this. So the main thing to learn here from the UFC's perspective is you've got to protect that main event. The fact that we lost Volkanovski versus Ortega is, is a big deal because had Stipe versus Ngannou been called off, that would have been promoted to the main event and you still would have had a viable pay-per-view. If in the next couple days we lose Stipe versus Ngannou, which is entirely possible, we've seen fights in in the you know a day or two out get canceled due to COVID-19 protocols, or if somebody botches a weight cut, now that's not going to happen in this main event, but it could, right? It could for Masvidal versus Usman, which is going to headline 261. You, you generally need a backup fight to promote. And in this case, if, if Stipe versus Ngannou gets pulled, they'll have to cancel the pay-per-view, I would imagine. Because I don't know what fight remaining on this card you could elevate to a pay-per-view event, main event status. Right, you've got Woodley versus Luke. You've got O'Malley versus Almeida. That's that's all well and good. Some intriguing fights there, but neither of those are pay per view worthy. And the fact that so many fights have have been canceled just this week alone is got to be worrying a little bit to the promotion, right? I mean, look at some of the embedded where Ngannou is, you know, wearing a mask, but then goes in for a pedicure, takes his mask off. The the pedicure person did have their mask on and again i'm not we're not talking about the moral stance here on should he be wearing a mask not all that blah blah, blah. it what we're talking about is from a business perspective if Ngannou ends up tested positive in the next two days that's that's bad news very bad news for the promotion and stipe could too it could i mean with with the new variants out there you it, it, there's new data talking about how wild that uk variant spreads and how easily it spreads it's totally a possibility so what the ufc really needs to learn especially from this past week and as they go into a place like florida that is wide open is you gotta at least keep your main event fighters in some sort of bubble gotta make sure that they are good because you can lose just about every other fight outside of the main event but if one, once that main event is gone, you better have a backup fight ready that you can push to pay-per-view status. And if you can't, well, then you're in trouble. Is that part of the reason that they booked three title fights when they're going to UFC 261? I think it's much more about sending a, a message and the brand, you know, statement, as I covered on last week's podcast. But it's not a bad idea because it very well could happen that you know, two fights get called off because of these COVID-19 protocols. Even when the fighters feel fine, even when there are no symptoms, if them or any one of their quartermen test positive, fights off. And that's, you know, that's that's just going to be hard to stop unless you have tighter restrictions. I understand why the promotion from a business perspective does not have a, a tighter bubble right now because there's more costs involved, there's more monitoring, there's there's a lot more that goes into that. A big reason why it worked in Abu Dhabi was because Abu Dhabi was paying for most of that as well as running it. So it wasn't 
that the UFC really had a choice, but the Abu Dhabi government really took charge of that whole situation for Fight Island and locking everything down. In Vegas, in Jacksonville, where they're going, it, it's on the promotion to recreate that bubble if they're going to go that far. And that incurs more costs. It incurs more, you know, logistics. A lot more goes into that. And I understand why it's probably cost prohibitive for them in their minds. Like, hey, yeah, we're not going to do it. It'll be all right. If we lose some fights, we lose some fights. Not a big deal. But they've got to protect that main event. They really do. And in Jacksonville, they'll have a couple of backups. But for UFC 260, I mean, at this point, they've, they, if, if I'm the promotion, I am making sure that Stipe and Nganu are definitely not going out, being social, being in public. I, I might be having an extra set of eyes on them right now because that fight cannot fall through. If it does, it's going to be extremely hard for them to justify keeping this pay-per-view. They'd probably cancel, I would imagine, at this point, and then have to reschedule, deal with all that. It, nothing that you want to see the promotion do, especially when, as we talked about on last week's show, Endeavor's really counting on the UFC to bring them money. Don't want to cancel any pay-per-views at this point. So I don't think it's going to affect the pay-per-view buys as it stands right now. If you lose Stipe and Ganu, I think then the entire event dies. You could lose pretty much every other fight. You can get down to a six-fight card. <laughs> as long as Stipe and Ganu is okay, you can go ahead and put on the show. And I'm sure they could pick up a couple regional fighters last minute. You know, people in Vegas training at Extreme Couture or some of the other gyms to, you know, mash them together if they needed to. We've seen them do that, right? When uh, Habib versus Ali Quinta, uh, like that pay-per-view, it's blanking the actual number right now, but we we've seen them throw together these cars last minute, get fights on there. They can stack and find ways to do that, but they need the main event intact. So as long as that stays around, I think pay-per-view buys are still going to generally be the same and they'll be okay. In terms of what UFC 260 will be in, in actual pay-per-view buys, my estimate, this is tough. We know UFC 220 which was headlined by the first Stipe versus Nganu fight, got around 300,000. I believe that was in Boston. And that was when Nganu hype train was in full force. I had people that, you know, don't watch UFC that that regularly calling me up being like, whoa, what's up with this Nganu guy? That was when he, you know, had all those crazy knockouts. The Overeem knockout was still pretty fresh. He looked like an absolute killer. And that still only did 300K or so. And he had, he had Cormier defending the belt as well in the co-main. So, I mean, if Ngannou had won then, I think that would have kind of catapulted him into a bigger star status, but he didn't. And, you know, as much as I love Stipe, I, I am a self-proclaimed Stipe fan. I, I will admit that he's not a massive draw, right? We we know he's not the biggest draw in the world. When he's fought Cormier, there's been a little bit more of a a, a boost because then you've got the double champ champ status. Cormier has had a history with Jones. So, you know, then you've got some drawing power to it. And I believe they've ended up, you know, getting a little bit higher, closer to the 400,000 range or so. But this rematch, even though Nganu has looked amazing since his, I don't know if you want to call it a loss or whatever, against Derek Lewis, again, just been on an absolute tear killing people. I don't think there are as many eyes on it because of you know what we've talked about before in terms of making a superstar where if you've got the casual viewer's attention 
the guy that normally doesn't watch UFC, you've got to be near perfect. You can't have a loss like Nganu did against Stipe, where he wrestles him, he, he takes him down, he gets a 50-44 decision across the board because he just really just manhandles you. Because that casual viewer is not coming back. Even if Nganu goes on tears and knocks out everybody and their mom, that casual viewer is like, well, yeah, but he's fighting Stipe again. He's just going to get wrestled a bunch. We already saw how that's going to play out. Some may. Some may come back and say, oh, okay, you know, let's see if it works out a little bit better. But it's not the same thing. You, you really get one shot of near perfection and, and charisma to get a casual viewer invested in you. And unfortunately for Nganu, I think, especially with just the way this card feels and the hype, there's still a little bit there, but it's not, it's not what it was on his initial run. So with that all being said, and especially because Volk versus Ortega is no longer on the card, I'm going to estimate that this is going to be, let's say 350K. I think there still is a little bit of a bump COVID wise, because a lot of other countries are still locked down and, and, you know, Stipe has, has been doing well and Ganu has had some knockouts. I think naturally it's going to be higher than their first anyway, just because of the way the UFC has trended lately, but it's nowhere near what it could have been during Nganu's initial run, right? If, if this was a rematch where Nganu had knocked out Stipe the first time and Nganu was the champ and had just been knocking dudes out, I think we're in the 600 plus easy 600,000 plus easy range, probably closer to 800 or even a mil, but yeah, I'm going to go 350 K. I don't know that we're going to get an estimate again, depends on if certain people are able to get their sources confirmed and we can go with that, but I'm going to go 350 K say it's probably on the lower side just because Nganu kind of missed his chance at getting that crossover casual fan audience. And as much as I love steep a, he hasn't been able to capture that either. So 350K it is in my prediction. All right, so the next thing I want to dive into is the PFL may end up delaying their 2021 season because of lawsuits back when they were World Series of Fighting. So we have to take a trip down memory lane to 2015, 2016, 2017, those three years really. Back when the World Series of Fighting was rebranding as the PFL, there were a just slew of lawsuits levied against them uh, some due to breach of contract, some due to investors saying that the PFL didn't do them right, uh, others due to not repaying the loans that they received in order to run the World Series of Fighting. And the main investors that may you know, end up causing the delay or whose suits have moved far enough in the court system to delay the PFL 21 season according to Mike Russell, are Darren Owen, Vince Hesser, and Sean Wright. So we've done a couple of articles on the PFL saga, specifically with Ali Abdelaziz's ties to the PFL, being matchmaker, SVP, all of that. You can check out that article at thebodylockmma.com. There's also some great articles focusing on the lawsuits from back in 2015, 2017, uh, by John Nash and Paul Gift, who really dive into the lawsuits levied against the promotion at the time. What happened with the World Series of Fighting was they were in a bunch of trouble. They were not, you know, doing what they should. They had all these lawsuits levied against them, and they ended up kind of closing down. And in 2017, a group of DC investors came along and bought the World Series of Fighting assets. 
and retained some key executives, including Carlos Silva and Ray Cefo. Now, Paul Gift brought this up, and I will address it in a little bit here, of why you would end up buying the World Series of Fighting assets, especially when some of their best fighters like Marlon Moraes and some other guys had moved on to the UFC, is a little confusing. But nevertheless, this group of investors ended up buying the PFL, or World Series of Fighting, and rebranding it as a PFL, but the lawsuits still transfer, right? Just because you buy a company's assets doesn't mean that, oh, you know, all is forgiven and they're rebranded. They're a different company now. It's different owners. Oh, no, it's not how it works. <laughs> Technically, those assets are still involved in the original lawsuits limited against them, even though you've rebranded, even though you have basically new executives outside of the couple that you retained that I mentioned, doesn't just go away like that. That's not, you know, no legal hocus pocus there. Otherwise, I'm sure we would see a lot more of that stuff. So this could end up being a pretty major deal for the PFL in a couple of ways, right? If the PFL ends up delaying their 2021 season, they already had to cancel their 2020 season. Fighters are already pissed. If you end up delaying the 2021 season, fighters still aren't getting their contracted show and win money unless they fight. You might get that stipend. You might get an extension on that stipend, but that's not the same as your show and win money as many fighters have publicly talked about. And when you are a startup, which again, PFL is just a rebranded startup, similar to what World Series of Fighting was, you really rely heavily on investors and, and key players to pour money into you so that you can you incur losses until you're profitable. And we've talked about that. We've talked about some of the, some of the tactics PFL has used going on Bloomberg TV and certain press releases calling themselves, you know, the number two promotion right behind the, the UFC, really touting up the, you know, paydays and the tournament format saying it's similar to football and, and NBA and it's, a, it's, you know, more meritocratic sport. We've talked about that a lot, but at the end of the day, you've got to get that injection of cash and they've been successful with fundraising, but lawsuits like this are never ever a, a good sign for potential investors, especially if they delay your operations. It's one thing if you've got these lawsuits hanging out in the background from six, anywhere from four to six years ago. And you're saying, no, nah, it's fine. There's, you know, completely, untrue claims or there's no merit to these claims, which I believe the PFL has commented on in one of, I believe it was Paul Giff's story said, Oh, there's no merit to these claims. It's untrue. Blah, blah, blah. It's fine to say that. And in the midst of saying that still go out and fundraise and investors can look the other way, right? Obviously the investors that bought the world series of fighting assets to rebrand it as a PFL look the other way, whether that was legal advice, whether it was certain people, you know, just saying the right things that they believe them, what have you, they look the other way when they bought those assets. And there must've been enough reason in their mind that, Hey, we're getting a deal here. We can buy these things. We can really make this a whole league. And yeah, yeah, they've got these lawsuits, but they must've felt it was pretty much worth the risk. They must've thought it was pretty low risk. Because if you were these group of investors back in 2017 who bought World Series of Fighting and turned it into PFL, you must have thought, oh, okay, 
yeah, the low risk in terms of of these lawsuits actually causing damage or disrupting operations. Then you get to today. If you delay the season, even if it's a week because of something going on in the court system, I can tell you right now, a lot of future investors are going to balk at that. And current investors are probably going to get a little nervous. I don't think it would be a injunction type situation where the a judge would say, no, you can't have the PFL host shows while we're going through this process. But and any type of delay that they can tie back to ongoing legal battles, it, it will hurt them for fundraising. And as we've talked about, they desperately need fundraising still at this point. They're still growing. They've made a lot of big signings with 2020 being canceled. They had to come back in a big way. They've gotten the money and gotten the investment to really go after these big fighter acquisitions. That was part of the last fundraising round where they said they're going to use most of the money to go after bigger name fighters. Now you've got familiar faces like Rory McDonald and Anthony Pettis and Fabricio Verdum, recognizable faces that will hopefully get more of the hardcore and semi-hardcore crowd to start watching your product a bit more rather than saying, oh, it's regional, it's whatever. You should hopefully get some of those UFC fans as we've talked about before, but you still have a long way to go to being profitable, especially when you're paying out a million dollars a season to each winner. Not just, hey, there's one $1 million prize for everybody. It's every champion gets a million dollars. To be profitable, you've really got to hit some new heights. And their current broadcast deal with ESPN doesn't satisfy that. Their date and their ticketing doesn't satisfy that. We'll see what 2021 holds, but I would imagine, you know, they still have a ways to go. Years, I'd say, easily. I'd say three to five years minimum that they would have to be profitable. If they if they ended up being profitable within three years, that would be crazy. That would be insane. I think it's probably, it, it's possible, very hard to do, possible, but I think it's probably five plus year time horizon so when you're going out and getting funds and trying to raise funds last thing you need now is is a delay due to legal battles from years ago because i think also right we've had fighters say they'll threaten lawsuits talked about how if you're gonna do that in public you're probably not gonna actually file it right actions speak louder than words type of deal when it comes to that but if the season gets delayed Again, you might see some of these fighters go ahead and and push forward with some of this. And there still is a lot of mess with with the World Series of Fighting stuff. It's been out of the media's eye for a while now. But, I mean, there are some of these allegations. If if they end up being true, if a court finds in favor for the plaintiffs, uh, it's bad news. It's really bad news for those assets which are now the pfl honestly if we get a delay i would say there's probably a a solid chance the pfl delays the season for a little bit goes ahead go ahead and and they they end up having it eventually but their next fundraising round is severely diminished and they may end up closing in the next couple years if it ends up being a major delay to the 2021 season. 
I, I think that's it. I think PFL's done. They already got so hurt from not having a 2020 season, and they've done a lot of the right things by signing the names that they have and really pushing, you know, the possibilities of some of these matchups, right? I mean, think about Pettis versus McDonald at 170 is a pretty great matchup. And, you know, something that eventually they're looking to do. I mean, who knows how long it'll be. Um, but Pettis has said he wants to fight both 155, 170. So that that's a fight you could sell, right? And it, it's just, it's hard. It's hard to watch this because to have it be derailed now due to these lawsuits that are so old and that are just finally, you know, coming to court, which we've seen in the UFC antitrust lawsuit, right? Like we've only really started to see some of these big revelations and see it moving to get class certified, not even go to trial where, okay, we're going to decide if this actually was monospony and, and the fighters are owed this money or what have you, but just to get class certified, it's been five, six years. So it's about the right time frame. that guess what? Now we get to the point where, some of these PFL lawsuits are coming in. It, it's it sucks because I, I think PFL is good competition, and I think they've made a lot of the right moves. But this could sink them if if they delay at all. It hurts badly. If they delay a lot, I think it near kills them. And not to mention, if any of if any of the plaintiffs win in court, I think it kills them too because some of these allegations would cause some major red flags for investors in terms of future fundraising. We've we've already talked about if you're investing in the PFL now, you've seen how they've done over the past couple of years. You know, the 2020 got canceled. You've already got a pretty in a best case scenario. I'd say lower moderate risk profile. You start adding in these lawsuits, you start adding in more delays. I'd say you're, your risk profile jumps up quite a bit. And I don't know that they're going to find investors that have the risk appetite, especially when there are so many other options, you know, that VCs and other, you know, single investors can, can put money into. So we'll see how it goes. It's, it's a, you know, shame that right when the PFL seems to be poised to have their biggest year, and rebound from not having a 2020 season that these come up. But that's what you get when you buy a company that you knew had pending legal action. And we'll see how it plays out. But it could be bad. Could be the end of the PFL. So next thing I want to tackle here is Misha Tate making her return to the UFC July 17th against Marion Renault. As far as we know, two days ago, and this is coming from Drake Riggs over here at the Body Lock, who I trust with this type of information, she was still working at one championship as of two days ago. How does that work? Well, for those of you that don't know about fighter contracts, when you retire doesn't mean that you're free of the promotion, at least for the UFC. The way their contracts work is that if you end up retiring, it freezes your contract. So whether it's a certain amount of fights remaining or a certain time frame remaining on the contract, it freezes the minute you retire. Could be a year, two years, five years, what have you. If you're going to come back and fight MMA, 
they have to say it's okay for you to fight somewhere else. They have to essentially release you from that contract. Otherwise, you have to fight in the UFC. So this is the case with Misha. When she went to one championship as a vice president, she moved to Singapore, was poised to do a bunch of stuff there, was doing a weekly column for one championship's website, and then the pandemic hit. And she's openly talked about how it kind of derailed things, where she moved back to the States, was hoping to help one championship, you know, make their presence felt here because 2020 was supposedly the year that one championship was going to start hosting shows in the U.S., but that didn't get to happen. She started training again, started to get the bug and say, you know what, I want to go ahead and train and maybe I'll come back and, and fight again. Now, we've done a couple videos on Misha coming back. There's me and Drake covering it when she initially was first talking about this. And then more recent video we did with Matt as well, where we talk about her return to the octagon. So definitely check out those two videos. But in terms of how this all works into her one championship work, right? Seems like an obvious conflict of interest. Mm, yes and no. There is an advantage for the UFC to let her keep that vice presidency job. That obviously is a, a job not involved with fighting. I mean, you've got the, the coaching stuff at Evolve Gym, which could be a thing, but it, it's, it's not fighting. And the UFC, especially over the past couple of years with the antitrust lawsuit kind of ramping up, has more and more started to take actions that poise their fighters as independent contractors, right? This would be a way for them to continue that image, something they could point to so that if anybody tried to bring, you know, antitrust allegations against them in this day and age, they could say, well, no, look, I mean, look at what we did with Misha. She fought for us because she was under contract to fight with us, but we let her go work at a competitor because she's an independent contractor. She can technically do that. We have her under contract as a fighter, not as, you know, a vice president. The UFC may allow that. One championship certainly would welcome that. I mean, that's great press. If you have a vice president go and, you know, win fights in the UFC and then come back and do work and, and promote one championship's work, I mean, that's huge. That's, hey, man, that, that's free promotion for you. And you get to push that and tout that up and, you know, say, oh, yeah, we've got, I'm sure one would spin it in such a way to be like, yeah, we've got fighters that can hang with UFC athletes, even though, again, she's not fighting one championship. But still, you could spin that a million different ways. One would welcome that PR all day. Now, is it worth it, again, overall on the UFC side to do that? Depends. Depends on how they feel about current antitrust lawsuit litigation and whether or not they're worried about anything recent, right? That, that lawsuit covers mostly 2010 through 2017. Doesn't really cover as much the past, you know, four or five years. If they're worried about something happening in this particular lawsuit that would then launch another lawsuit, that then it makes all the sense in the world to have Misha go ahead and still be a VP P at one championship because really how much is that going to hurt your brand? If she was fighting in one, that's a whole different ball game, right? Then there's a risk there that your brand could be tarnished. It, it could cause some issues. That's why you'll never have the dream matchups of 
UFC fighting, you know, a Bellator champion versus champion type thing, any of that. No, UFC will never risk that. They've they've built their entire business around their brand. If Misha fights in the UFC and one simultaneously, then you've got a problem. And I'm not sure one would necessarily want that either. There's there are some ramifications there. But to be a vice president and more on the executive side, which let's be honest, in terms of vice president, her title, according to one championship's website, is the vice president of one championship. I don't know how many of you work in corporate America, but generally that's not a real title, so to speak, right? That you, there's always the vice president of something. It's vice president of sales, vice president of marketing operations, what have you to just be labeled as the vice president. He could see it if they're a smaller company and there's only one, but then you got Rich Franklin, who is also a vice president. Some other people that are vice. It's kind of just a, a namesake title where you don't really know exactly what she's doing. You know, she's doing something on the executive administrative side, but technically she could be the vice president. And maybe she was just writing those columns for one championship, in which case the UFC doesn't care. UFC has let fighters write columns for, uh, Roxanne Modafferi has written columns for various news outlets while she's fought under contract. I mean, yeah, it, it just doesn't, you, you don't know exactly what she's doing there. She's not vice president of sales or operations or something in particular. It's vice president. Okay. Is, is that seems like a ceremonious title? In my opinion, if you, if you're just going to label somebody that is generally kind of more of a ceremonious thing, but as long as she's not fighting at one championship, it may benefit the UFC to let her keep that title and let her keep working there. Because again, it makes them look better in the grand scheme of things. And it's not like Tate is, is necessarily making a run for the belt. Let's say she comes back, she beats Renault and then she gets a title shot and she beats Nunes. Then you've got a different situation then you probably need to work something out where she's not going back to one championship because having a champion or a, a, you know, having a champion over at a different promotion, ah, that's, that's a different scenario. In this case, you have somebody with name value, but you don't have someone that necessarily is going to hurt your brand by doing different types of work, even if it is for a competitor. And it, it all depends on how the UFC feels about it. If they feel super confident about any antitrust litigation coming their way from 2021, 2017, then they may very well say, nah, you can't. Sorry, you've got to be with us exclusively. Can't do anything with one while you're fighting here. If they're even a little unsure, I think it probably is in their best interest to go ahead and let Misha do whatever because it, it protects them more. It's just something that they can point to. So she may still be a one championship vice president. She may not be. We don't know. It's not been confirmed yet either way, whether she's still working for one. But I don't think it's as big of a conflict of interest here as a lot of people are making it out to be. In fact, that perception that it's a big conflict of interest only helps the UFC's really case for her to keep that work because then they can say, look, it was a major conflict of interest and look, she still, she fought for us, but we let her go do this. And this was a huge conflict of interest. That only helps 
them in any antitrust litigation and the whole independent contractor versus employee type thing. So I think if, if that's the case, especially if this, this is continually brought up and asked about, they're even more likely to let Misha work there if she still is and if she wants to. It's very possible that Misha said, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going to really talk to one about this. And then I, or I put in my two weeks notice, I'm, I'm over it. And then, yeah, I resigned. And it's, that's entirely possible, but we don't know yet. It could be Misha's decision. Now I want to go back to fighting. I don't want to do this one stuff. We're done. And in that case, it doesn't matter. But I, I would not be shocked if she is working at one while fighting in the UFC. So the last thing I want to hit today real quickly is April 6th, Judge Boulware is set a public hearing to discuss unsealing documents in the UFC antitrust lawsuit case. Now, I said a while back that he had made an announcement that he was going to unseal some documents and that the plaintiffs or defendants could make objections to that, provide supporting documentation as to why things should remain under seal, all of that. It's been a while. I've been checking constantly to see if they you know, have been unsealed, what's going on. There's a written order coming before that, which has some big ramifications uh, before April 6th. But on April 6th, there will be a public hearing to discuss more of these unsealing of documents. That's a big deal because it's very possible April 6th comes. Here's our, he hears arguments in terms of why some documents should be unsealed or makes decisions on which will be unsealed versus all of that. And then in the next couple of days, suddenly we get a new treasure trove of information that we've been in the dark about. We have a lot of financials and a lot of business tactics the UFC used, as well as some of their competitors have used, um, due to the lawsuit hearings we had back in 2019. But we had a bunch of information that was redacted. If they unseal some of this stuff, we're talking about Brock Lesnar's laid out specific contract. We're talking about um, various financials and and really the inner workings of the UFC before they were sold the Endeavor and even a little bit after. It's be massive stuff. Could be. Could end up being, uh, okay, we knew most of this stuff or we've made estimates on this and it's just confirming that and it's like, okay. But the amount of things under seal right now, I would imagine you're looking at a treasure trove of new information that could be just huge for us in the MMA business community. So stay tuned for that. It's coming up. I'm going to keep checking in terms of in case anything, you know, happens sooner than that, but expect a video that week um, around April 6th to discuss what, what happened at the hearing as well as what documents are unsealed. If I end up getting unsealed documents, I may end up delaying that fight business podcast because, again, I'm just going to try and run through them as fast as I can, learn everything I can so I can come back to you guys with awesome information. And hopefully it's really juicy stuff that we all want to see, right? Who doesn't want to know? Who who in the world doesn't want to know what Brock Lesnar's contract actually said? Or, you know, what the UFC actually made and how fighters were actually paid from a particular year. I mean, and breakdowns and everything in terms of costs, in terms of all, all of that. Just, ugh. It's one can only hope those detailed financials and, and uh, you can only hope. So I will keep in the loop about that as well. Again, April 6th is the date It is a public hearing. If any of you guys want 
information about how to join that particular hearing, let me know in the comments. I will let you know. I will either say or DM me on Twitter. I'll, I'll get back to you and give you that information because it is free and open to the public. So I'm going to be there, obviously, but you guys can be there as well. So if you want that info, definitely let me know. All right. And that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Thank you so much for watching on YouTube. Make sure you hit that like, subscribe, bell notification button. If you are on YouTube, again, always appreciate that. If you're listening on Anchor, Podcast Addict, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, what have you, really appreciate it as always. Love you guys as well. And let me know if you think my pay-per-view estimates are just right, high, low, let me know. Let me know how you feel about my pay-per-view estimate for UFC 260, PFL lawsuit. Do you think the PFL is in major trouble if we end up delaying the season again? Let me know your thoughts on all that. And then, of course, again, if you want that information for the hearing on April 6th, hit me up in the comments or DM me on Twitter as well. Until next time, everyone, get money. Mm -hmm.